Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com and with me as always is my co-host Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi there, Jeff. We are recording this on Sunday, August 25th, the day before the beginning of the 2019 U.S. Open. Carl, for those of you who don't, you don't know, is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis Podcast, which has a new episode out this week, and presumably more. Usually the U.S. Open is the most prolific time of year for Carl and 30 Love Podcast, so keep tabs on that. Um, also, before we get started, I wanted to say a special thank you to our listeners around the world. I was recently notified that we are on iTunes charts in Sweden, in Germany, and apparently in various other places like the Czech Republic and Austria. We knew we had a huge fan base in Austria, but it's nice to see that validated in the form of a chart. So thank you everyone from these countries that aren't interested in American sports. Uh, we know that really helps keep the tennis popular. Um Carl, the first thing I want to talk about this week before we get into our U.S. Open preview stuff is a little teaser um, of the new long, 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 long-awaited version of the Tennis Abstract player pages. Uh, those of you who have followed the site for a long time have seen some changes over the years, but they've mostly been incremental. The player pages have looked the same more or less since I started the site in 2011, so uh, this is this is going to be a big one. Hopefully, by the time most of you are listening, uh, the, the new player pages will be live for men. The women are going to take a few more days at least. Um, but Carl, I've shown you the, the samples that I've generated, so you know what, what everyone else is going to be exposed to within the next day or two. Um, I, there's a ton more information there, and I'm, I'm curious with with match charting stats, with some point-by-point -point stats, with year-by-year -year, um, summaries, with splits, with, with, with a ton of new data on the page, what, what are you most excited to see? Like, what, what's, what's the stuff on these pages that you think is going to help you more enjoy following tennis or better analyze the tennis that you follow? Oh, God. I, so first, my cop-out answer, which is it's the totality of it. Um, it I've been a fan for years. I think you have too of baseball reference and the way that it just gives you so many options drawing on a few different sources uh, to to analyze a specific player and, and put that player in context. And I mean, this really is coming at it from all angles and also from like different levels of abstraction down to, you know, specific key points in a match and then up to how they've done on certain surfaces or uh, at certain events. And a lot of these were things that you could kind of tease out of the old player pages if you'd used them enough times, which I certainly had. But to see them all just like in tables, comparable side to side is great. And it's very flexible so that it uh, it works for someone who has barely played any tour level matches like Yannick Sinner, who just qualified for the US Open, or for someone who's played hundreds like David Goffin. Uh, these are two of the players you've been testing on. I mean, I guess if I have to choose one, we talked last week, I think, about the leaderboards you made based on match charting project data. And I think that's so exciting, A, because it's totally something you, you brought into this world by finding people around the world who want to chart matches. So this data really wouldn't be available if they hadn't been charting these 5,000 plus matches, I think. 6,000. 6,000 plus, well, which is 5,000 plus when you think about it. And also, it's just so granular, so you can answer questions like how many 
of their backhands go for winners and how often do they win shots that are seven rallies that are seven to nine shots and these are things you might see on an individual match that's being broadcast from a major court you know with all the latest technology but to see it for you know three of Sinner's challenger matches I mean that's just unheard of you wouldn't see that anywhere else and even from three matches you can start to see okay he's got a looks like he's consistently got a better backhand than forehand that's pretty unusual wow his backhand's really good that's interesting these are against challenger opponents maybe don't make too much of it yet but that's something to watch about him and that would that you just wouldn't get from stats anywhere else yeah, I, I, you brought up Baseball Reference, and I think anyone who's familiar with Baseball Reference uh, will recognize that that's one of my main inspirations in doing this. And the when I first designed Tennis Abstract, it was something that I wanted to have. Like I wanted to have the tennis equivalent of that, but kind of got stuck in this model where the page was just rows of matches. And I mean, I know that's super valuable, and the fact that you can filter those matches is is even more valuable, and see the totals with various filters applied and that's still going to be there i'm not taking the old-fashioned page away but it is somewhat limiting like if if you wanted to to compare someone's 2019 overall stats to their 2018 overall stats then you could like you say you could tease that out of the page but it takes some work now it doesn't and the cool thing about baseball reference and some other baseball sites like like fan graphs and the the baseball prospectus player pages and, and there's probably some others by now is it does give you so many angles on a player, and if you're if you're looking for something interesting or you're just trying to find something to watch for in a match, like if you can't find anything, it's your fault. <laughs> there's so much data there. There's there's interesting stuff on virtually every single player, and I tried to I tried to match that. I mean, I, I I've been gathering so much data over the last almost decade, and I mean, presenting some of it in blog posts and making some of the raw data available, but ultimately the form in which most fans are going to consume it is on a page like this. They're not, they're not going to write code to dig into the match charting project data. They're not going to, to look at 50 different match charting match pages. But if you can say, you know, this, this player is their aggression score in 2019 is higher than their aggression score in 2018, then if it doesn't take a lot of work to get there, that can be interesting for even a more casual fan. And hopefully get more people interested in in the more granular data you're talking about. So so yeah, I'm I'm really excited about it. I mean, Tennis Abstract has always been the site that I wanted to have more than anything else. I mean, first priority was the site I wanted to have and priority 1A was the site that Carl wanted to have pretty much from the beginning. Um so I mean, I hope other people enjoy it too, but ultimately like like you said when when I first sent you the W GoFan page, you said you could look at GoFan's page alone for hours, and I think that's going to be true for for every player. Like if you're really interested in a player, there's almost an endless amount of of interesting material there to look at that goes so far beyond just match by match records. I think we were first talking about this site maybe in 2010 in London before or after playing ourselves and. The name Tennis Abstract, of course, is an homage to Baseball Abstract. So you and I both starred in Baseball Stats, as did Jeff McFarland, who's been a co-host on the show a few times. And um, you could say on the one hand, well, geez, it's 2019 and you're only now doing this. On the other hand, you could say if Jeff hadn't been amassing all of this and creating a whole new set of stats with the Match Charting Project, 
maybe this would have come to tennis in 2030, maybe never, probably not in this form and probably not with this care taken to like, what are the right stats to show and what grouping and how do I handle every little edge case? I, I mean, to, to make something like this, you have to handle someone who's had like one career match and someone who's had hundreds and make it all make sense. Could you just like give an example of like a weird thing that popped up that you didn't expect? Well, it's a really, really, really long list. And anybody who does very much programming knows that like the job you think you're doing is is like 10% of the job and the rest is is edge cases. Or the, the common way of saying that is the 80-20 rule. So you end up, the 20% ends up being the 80, 80% of the work. Um, before we started recording, we were talking about one example where where I was getting errors from dividing by zero because there is one match in my point-by-point point database where one of the players didn't win a single return point. I, I foolishly assumed that every completed match uh, would have both players winning at least one return point. But I think the bigger and more interesting issue is that what, what you brought up as an example, which is that I, I, there's this format for the pages that has... Uh, stats by year, stats by event, a list of matches, a list of finals, uh, all these different things. But then it has to work for someone with one match or with with tons of matches but no matches with stats or, or various things like that. And given the, the vagaries of tennis data and the fact that, you know, we have challenger data back to some year, we have ATP data back to a different year, we have qualies back to a different year, we have stats for some of those things to different times, we have sort of this ra- sort of random mix of matches that are charted, a different random mix of matches where we have point by point data, and so on and so on and so on. You really can't make any assumptions. Like every single step of this process had to had to be like if a player has this, then show this. Um, if a player has this subset of that, then show something else. And hopefully, like all of that will not appear as complex as it is on the pages. But it's just make, making it look smooth is it, it results in some code that does not itself look smooth. Fortunately, no one else has to look at that, and hopefully, I won't have to look at it too much either. Um, but yeah, there, there's. There's so much variety in what the players, what the pages can look like, and I think this is something we talked about when I first started plotting this out. Is it, it can be very distracting that w- when I'm thinking about what the Federer page should look like, I'm also thinking about what the what the page should look like for somebody who played two futures level matches. And ultimately, that doesn't really matter. Like the goal should be to have a Federer page that shows all the Federer information that you want, without limiting that because of the the very different data you have available for someone else, but it does require some compromises to, to have something useful come out for players at any level, um, whether they have charted matches or not, and, and so on and so forth. I, I just want to... I mean, this is clearly an important milestone for Tennis Abstract, and I think an important milestone for Tennis Stats and Tennis, but I think for the fan who might be wondering, okay, when am I going to use this? How do I use this? I think you should think of this as a companion to watching matches. Like, you may not think you are interested going into a match at how often each player hits drop shots, and then maybe three games in, when one of them's already hit four and lost the point each time, you want to go see how often he hits drop shots, and is this a tactic for this match or what he always does. Um, And, you know, any baseball fan who's, let's say, seen a pitcher stay in past six innings and wanted to know how that pitcher does past six if you were doing that before a certain year you just wonder or remember the one game you saw it happen and then past a certain year you could just answer that question for yourself and that's kind of what this is like this is like those questions you wonder about during a match 
And now you can find the answer almost instantly if the data is available, which it is more than it ever was. Yeah, I mean, that's ultimately why I started the site in the first place is there were some really, really basic questions that weren't possible to answer. I mean, if you think back to the the early 2010s, then like there there weren't a dozen sites online where you could easily get uh, get a player's recent record. Now there's there's all these sites that are geared around mostly around sports betting, I think, like like Flash Score and Sofa Score and, and some other ones that are that are great and they have some stuff that Tennis Abstract doesn't have, especially being tied into betting sites with betting odds and things like that. Um, but that stuff mostly didn't exist back then. So if you wanted if you wanted to look at a list of results and have more than just the score, like you were out of luck. You had to do it yourself. You had to build your own database. And then you didn't. And I mean, a, a lot of, a, not a lot, but some commentators were among the first people to pick up on just how useful it is for exactly the reason you're talking about. Like if, if you want to know like how a player does against lefties, that used to be a big manual job. Uh, and, and now if you, if you've used tennis abstract, you, you know that you're just a couple clicks away from, from having an answer to that question. And now, like you say, you're just a couple clicks away from having an answer to an order of magnitude more questions, whether it's whether it's drop shots or how often you hit wide serves on on break point or how often players successfully serve out a set or, I mean, on and on and on and on, tons of stuff. But hopefully this is the stuff that fans are already interested in. I mean, I, I, I keep up on the, the Reddit or the tennis subreddit sometimes just to get a sense of what people are talking about and some tennis news I might have missed. And often people will ask these questions that, are, are just outside the scope of what Tennis Abstract and other sites already have. And hopefully we've brought some of those kind of idle fan wondering about stuff questions within the scope of the site. So people will be able to answer more of those questions and maybe even do more interesting research to extend that a step further. So enough about that. That was more self-indulgent than I intended it to be, but I do hope you'll check out the site over the next few days and and dig into what all the new stuff is you have we have to offer um but i I do want to talk about the u.s open since that's kicking off tomorrow we've got 128 players queued up in in both brackets i think all the lucky losers have been placed i know kevin anderson just officially withdrew so maybe it's 127 at this point with other people on the bubble but let's say 128 and i want to start on the men's side because the draw seemed to really have an impact and we've been talking about djokovic as the the clear favorite for some time um my my forecasts before we knew the draw gave Djokovic a pretty hefty edge, but now that the draw is set, uh, my ELO forecast says twenty eight percent for Djokovic, twenty seven for Federer, and twenty four for Nadal, which is as close as I can remember seeing the big three at a Slam in a really long time. Uh, Djokovic could potentially see Sam Querrey in the second round, could see Bavrinka in the fourth round. Does that sound dangerous to you? Do you think that those are potential stumbling blocks for Novak Djokovic? Everyone's a potential stumbling block, but I don't give—I wouldn't give either of them a very big chance. I, I've I've heard several people bring up the Vavrinka potential matchup in particular, and there's a very good chance Vavrinka won't reach the fourth round, and he's also not yet shown himself to be all that close to the level he was at in 2015. I think he's had a really nice comeback. He's had some good wins, most of them against Dimitrov. But he's, yeah, I I don't see him as a big threat. But I think Djokovic also drew Medvedev in the quarterfinals, and Medvedev seems more likely to get there and also has been 
the hottest player on tour for the last few weeks and the clear number four going into the tour, the tournament, as we said last week. So that seems like maybe the, the worst part of his draw. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't want to jump. Well, oh, I, I wasn't planning me. on Sorry. talking <laughs> that far ahead since we'll be there in, in, in a week, but, but no, that, 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 that's a good point to bring up. I mean, that's probably the biggest factor in what's knocking down Djokovic's odds of winning the title. I mean, do you think that, and again, this is a, this is a tough thing to eyeball or intuit, but, um, but if Elo is saying these three guys are basically even, despite the fact that before the draw was made, it it was more spread out. Does that feel right to you that the draw is is bad enough for Djokovic that it, it it's essentially a coin flip between him and Federer? Well, it takes two parts of that coin, and the other part is that Federer got a pretty easy draw, as you pointed out. So if Federer's draw was kind of medium, then I would be surprised, um, especially because on hard courts lately Djokovic has been the much better player including when he's when he's faced Federer um I mean small sample size but but still uh by the way just looking at your forecast and I know we we shouldn't talk too much about things we might be talking about a week from now but uh you're giving Medvedev a 68 percent chance of reaching the quarters you I mean your algorithm based on what tennis players do it's not like you're just making it up but uh, Medvedev... no, of course I'm not making it up. I would, I would never do that. You would never do that because it'd be so many numbers to make up. If you really it would boring. be so much work. Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, Medvedev is 68% to make the quarters and Vavrinka is 39% to make the fourth round. So it's one of these like upside down draw analyses. Um, and Query is 85% to make the second round. So that matchup's pretty likely to happen. Um. So for Federer, yeah, there's not there's not much danger there. Uh, Nadal also doesn't seem to have a particularly difficult draw. I didn't, I didn't spell that out too carefully in our in our notes. Um, Could we? I think, can I talk about that for a second? Yeah, fire away. So I have a friend. We probably everyone listening either has this friend or is this friend, uh, who's or a, is this person listening? <laughs> yeah, he might. Hi, Alex. Um, Alex is a name that I can say without betraying any identity. I think. So he's one of those Rafa fans, there are Fed fans like this, I'm sure there are Novak fans like this, who can always see the downside in a draw. So I saw him the other night, and I'm like, all right, finally a draw where he'll just say, yeah, Rafa has a pretty comfortable draw. He's like, oh, I don't know, I don't feel great. He draws Chilich in the fourth round. I'm like, how many times has Chilich won three straight matches this year, Alex? Do you really have to worry about it if he does? He's like, I don't know, I don't feel great about it, U.S. Open champion. So anyway, I think... Even the Rafa fans like Alex are stretching to find anything tricky in his draw. And I thought about that, too, um, when I was looking at the um, your, your outline for the Fed draw. And it was like, maybe Pella or Gofan in, in the fourth round. But even better, Jack Sock as a possible quarterfinal opponent. And I know you were I listing did put it. A, I put a question mark next to that. <laughs> so maybe and that was for I, my amusement. Well, and, and I do think that, yeah, I don't think Jack Sox going to be there. I don't think he'll get even close. He, he's barely come back from injury, in at least on the singles tour. But on the other hand, I, I feel like you can put him in the conversation at least as convincingly as you can Chilich, um, at least based on their performances this year. I mean, Sock is coming back. You don't really know what to expect, aside from the fact that he probably didn't maximize his rehab training. Uh, with Chilich... Yeah, it's a question mark, but he's mostly answered that question by playing badly all year. So, 
yeah, it's a long shot, but in uh, of the of the people who are unseated, I, mean, I would say Sock is one of the more likely guys to turn up in the quarterfinal, with the understanding that we're talking about pretty small percentages for all of them. By the way, unfair to Chilich of me, he did win three rounds at the Australian and at Madrid. So he has won three in a row not that long ago, but he's also lost three in a row, I think, more than once this year. Huh, that's a little better than I remembered. But yeah, but yeah it's, it's tough to see him as a, a big factor. And that I'm glad we were, were shifting to Chilich. That's a good segue to something else I wanted to ask you. I was looking at last year's results because... It's always striking to, it, it feels like it's, this tournament just happened in one way, but in, in another way, so much has changed in the last 12 months. For one thing, uh, last year, Juan Martin Del Potro made the final, and, and of course, he's dealing with another injury. He's planning to come back, apparently, but we have no Del Potro in the draw. But even beyond Del Potro, here, here's the eight-man quarterfinal lineup from last year. We have Nadal and team, who gave us that great five-setter, uh, Del Potro and Isner, Chilich Nishikori and Djokovic Milman. So here, here's a question. I want. I'm. I apologize. I'm blindsiding you with this a little bit. But of those eight, what do you think a reasonable forecast is for how many of those are going to be in the quarters again this year? Okay. So no Milman, no Del Potro. That's easy. Yes, Djokovic. Yes, Nadal. Uh, Team and Nishikori are, I, I don't know their exact draws, but they seem like pretty good bets. Team always shaky on hard courts, but, you know, who else? And, okay, so the other two were, did you say Chilich was one of them? Isner and Chilich. Isner and Chilich, so Isner has a chance. Okay, so let's say between Isner, Team, and Nishikori, something like 1.8 of them will go through, and something like 1.8 of Djokovic and Nadal will go through, so I guess I'll round up to four. Okay. Just, just so for the record, you have Isner, Nishikori, and Team averaged out to 1.8 people, which is like a normal size Isner. <laughs> exactly. I don't know where I'm going with that, but okay, so four people. And... Th- this is why I think this is interesting. Is we t- we end up and I'm talking about we as the entire tennis world, not just not just Carl and I, but we talk so much about how the the men's field is so stable, uh, or phrasing it negatively, boring. The women's field is so unstable, or you get all sorts of ways you can spin that negatively too. But we're projecting, or Carl's projecting four repeat quarterfinalists. Now that's the stable men's draw. Here's the unstable women's draw. Here are the eight quarterfinalists from the Women's U.S. Open last year, and let's let's do the same thing. So we have Serena and Karolina Pliskova, Sloane Stevens and Sevastova, uh, Carlos Suarez Navarro and Madison Keys, and then Naomi Osaka and Alicia Sorenko. Those are our eight quarterfinalists from last year. Okay, so I think like Keys, Osaka, Serena, Pliskova you could probably put in a similar group of having, and again, I, I haven't looked at all of their draws. So assuming kind of like neutral draws, uh, I don't know, maybe like a 60% chance of making the quarters, 60 to 70 on average for that group. And then the okay. other four, maybe more like a 25% on average. So that probably also works out to about four. Um, one, one part of your premise though, that I mildly dispute is that I think most of the, either objection or description regarding the men's tour is more about the semis or finals. Now, you know, either way you're cherry picking, but I think those are the more important things. Like 
if you have the same quarterfinalists or many of the same, but then every time it's a different group of semifinalists and finalists, that feels more chaotic. Um, I'm not sure the premise is true, but I think that's what people are more talking about because surprise quarterfinalists are pretty much a given. It is. Yeah, um, that is true. And the reason I like to hack away at it a little bit is I mean, we can't dispute the fact that the, the top of the men's game is more stable than the women's game. I mean, I, I'm pretty serious about being a contrarian, but even I can't I can't be contrary to something that's so self-evidently true. Um, but to me, it's like, yeah, as you say, that's that's the most important part, but it's not the only part. And maybe people who are complaining about the men's side being so boring or the women's side being so unstable, maybe one solution to their problem is to look inward and you know be interested in a little bit wider variety of stuff. Uh, and I'm not asking the whole 128. I'm just asking about the final eight. Like if you, if you focus on the final eight men and the final eight women, then at least according to our, our very rough, very unscientific study here, um, the, the men's and women's sides are, are similarly stable. It, it's just the last couple rounds where, where that starts to break down. Um, so on the men's side, we touched on most of the things I wanted to talk about. Uh, is anything else in the men's draw that caught your eye, Carl, that we should touch on? Well, I think only because we were at that match last year and because you said some things feel very similar, some different, the, we should probably flag like a million other people have the all Canadian matchup in round one. And maybe it'll go differently this time. Shapovalov, Auger Aliasim. Did you phrase that elliptically just so you didn't have to say Auger Aliasim? It's 60% that 40% that I like hearing you say it. Okay. Uh, well, it's making me very confident in my pronunciation, which doesn't mean it's any more right. Uh, You're consistent. But... You're like consistently hitting the outer rim of the, the bullseye. Yeah, that's the goal. Close enough for recognition, not close enough to be mistaken for a native speaker of any language. Um, now that match last year, yeah, as you say, we, we were there late night on day one and Auger Ali Asim had to, had to retire. I think Shapovalov consoled him by saying you'll be back and he didn't know just how precisely right he would be. It would be funny if they put that match on the same court um, in, for, for a night match on day one. But last year, I think w- people went into that match thinking, ah, oh, JLA seems super interesting. He just qualified. We know he's the next big thing. But Shapovalov was coming off a good run in 2017. And Shapovalov was, I think, viewed as a pretty heavy favorite going into that match. I mean, a lot has changed since then. I mean, do you think that Ajay Ali Asim is is the I mean the favorite or the heavy heavy favorite now over for his body of work this season certainly I think in terms of the last few weeks it's pretty close or maybe Dennis is is ahead and back in the game really so you, in, is there anything anything else he's done besides just has he done that much the last few weeks? I guess I haven't been paying enough attention. Well, I think maybe I'm combining it with my sense that I wish I had checked before, just confidently stating that um, (laughs) Felix has also fallen off um, these last few weeks, that he hasn't had a good hardcore season. Yeah, Yeah, we did talk about this last week, that his, his, I think it was his first match in Cincinnati, he had that awful double fault rate against Kechmanovic. So hopefully he'll he'll be able to resolve that a little bit and, you know, keep the double faults in single digits. 
Yeah, I, I think maybe I was a touch harsh, harsh in that he's, I guess, three and three, and his losses besides that one were to Kachanov and Chilich. So Chilich, even though we just denigrated, there's a good win for him. Um, so, yeah, he hasn't been bad, but he hasn't been as good as he was in some of those grass and grass events and then, like, uh, early in the hardcore season. Yeah, which is interesting because he's... he's had this impressive year in which he's made finals on three different surfaces and he didn't expect to do well on clay i think he his game would suggest he'll excel on grass but i mean like most like most players coming up these days in his generation he's training on hard courts he should be good on hard courts but that's the the one thing that hasn't clicked as much as it could um the one name who so this this year coming into the U.S. Open, you mentioned Medvedev is our number four behind the big three. He didn't have a top four seed, uh, but this time last year, I think we were talking about number four, number five being Alexander Zverev. He's fallen off some too. I think he might even be out of the top ten in the the Elo ratings. And I noticed he he has a potential round two against Francis Tiafoe, who hasn't had a great year, but has been known to give us some both theatrics and excellent performances in New York. Uh, do you think that in a match like that where we have a, a fading Zverev, a Zverev who's never been great in best of five against Tiafo playing on his home slam, for back of, lack of a better word, uh, is Zverev even the favorite in that match? Uh, hmm... Yeah, I think so, but not by much. Maybe f- high fifties. High fifties. So that that is not not the sort of thing you want to hear about a player who a year or two ago we were expecting to make a big breakthrough at a Grand Slam. Um, maybe one of these times it'll happen when we least expect it. It's, these things have happened before. So we already talked about the the returning quarter finalists on the women's side a little bit. Um, I had a really hard time deciding which matches were worthy of mention on the women's side because the, the the field is so even that I mean to me I'm interested in so many of the players, so many of the matchups are are interesting that the ones that there are none that particularly stand out. Like it's easy to make a list of twenty, it's harder to make a list of five. But two that definitely have to be on the list of five is. One, Serena Sharapova, somehow somehow getting Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova facing off in the first round of a Grand Slam. And the other one that, that will not get as much press attention but might be a, a better match is Arena Sabalenka against Victoria Azarenka. So an up-and-coming star versus a former star who's trying to get back on top. Um, is Sabalenka the former star who's trying to get back on top? No, obviously not. She's 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 more of a more of a supernova at all times. I mean, this is uh, one of one of my friends and correspondents is a huge Bianca Andreescu fan, and and this could of course be a breakthrough for her. I didn't even think about talking about her, but she's of course coming off of a her her great run in in Canada, and she seems to be healthy now and and rested after skipping Cincinnati. So. She could be a big name here, but this will be her last opportunity. Since I'm I'm choosing to be a little more conservative in my Sabalenka fandom right now, uh, I don't think Sabalenka will win this tournament. Maybe Andreescu will. But then the entire 2020s, starting in Australia in a few months, that's, that's Sabalenka time. Okay, you heard it here first. 
<laughs> yes. Um, I'm being very consistent in my ridiculous Sabalenka predictions. Um, but let, let's talk about that. Like, Andreescu has the impressive recent run. Sabalenka has has a really serious and delusional fan in one of the podcast co-hosts. Um, which one of those two do you think is the first to win a slam? Andreescu. Ah, now you're just being contrarian. Um, another name in the mix is Coco Goff, who is in the main draw with a wild card. This might be skipping ahead a little bit, but she is positioned in the draw to play Osaka in the third round. Um, because Goff hasn't played very much, Elo doesn't consider herself her much of a factor. I think I think it doesn't even give Goff a 50% chance of winning her first match. But we saw Goff really impressed at Wimbledon with even less of a track record. Uh, she's probably a little further away from from slam greatness than Andreescu or Sabalenka, but but what do you expect from Coco this fortnight? It really is a tough first round match. I don't think it's just Yulo. Uh She's playing Potapova. Oh yeah, and so my guess is it will feel like a mild disappointment if she loses that match, but she could play as well or better than she did at Wimbledon and getting to the fourth round. I think through qualies. So I. I don't have any. I don't think she should have any particular expectations. Just the fact that she, this isn't like a. This is a very um, understandable main draw appearance and one that feels right and one where she belongs and where it would be surprising if she's outmatched in pretty much any match. I mean, when she lost to Halep at Wimbledon, Halep, the eventual champ, she, I thought, played quite respectably. So. Uh, yeah, maybe she'll win a couple of rounds. Maybe she'll reach Osaka. I mean, there's a chance Osaka won't reach that third round match, given how inconsistent she's been at um, pretty much any level event this year. So um, there's there's a chance that that meeting doesn't happen on both sides. But I, I think just Coco being in the draw uh, and having been such a draw at an exhibition match last week in Winston Salem and beating Barty in that match, like she's she's arrived and that's pretty incredible for her age yeah it really is and it's it's good to keep the expectations in check i think there are our tennis fans who only pay attention to the the most extreme tennis moments who uh who are, are more ready to to call upon memories of the likes of the williams sisters and martina hingis early in their careers and think this this young talent just arrived and thus we expect her to win a grand slam immediately um those of us who are paying more attention and have looked at the trajectories of more players know that that the odds against that are, are awfully high. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's playing Osaka in a tight third round match would be a win for her. Even just getting past the first round would, would probably qualify as a, a successful outing for someone who's so young and so inexperienced and probably has so much improvement ahead of her. So, Speaking of the Williams sisters, we have, like I mentioned, Serena got Maria Sharapova in the first round. This is a feels like a really big tournament for Serena Williams, both because she came close to winning it and winning her 24th Grand Slam last year, and there was the, the big controversy with Carlos Ramos then. Um, she's, she's had an up-and-down year with injuries and, and some successful tournaments. Here, 
I, it's been so tough to know what to expect from Serena from week to week. I mean, as you pointed out when we were talking about forecasting a week or two ago, it feels like with Serena you have to make an adjustment for slams. Like, she obviously cares about playing them. She prioritizes playing them. Uh, she seems to stay healthier longer playing them or at least it keep herself in, in the draw longer uh, without withdrawing. Um, what's your What's your sort of weighted average projection here for Serena Williams? I think with a neutral draw, I would have gone with semifinal, given that she she does have a likely tough third rounder. I'm going to say quarterfinal. Okay. And I saw someone on Twitter, I, I'm, I'm guessing they were joking in the way that I joke about Sabalenka, but um, but it's been a really fun year for Shea Suwei, who's... I feel like she's had one of her best single seasons in a long time. She's near the top of the doubles rankings, playing most of the time with Barbara Streetsova. Um, she's she's scored some good wins, uh, or or really bad ones in my view, if you think about Wimbledon last year against Simona Halep. But she's suddenly a pretty dangerous player, and and also dangerous in the way that she has a very unorthodox game, and and she's one of those potential third rounders for Serena. Seems like a match that could go either way, either. Either Shea could drive her nuts and, and win a close match, or Serena could just blow her off the court. We've seen plenty of matches in Serena's career where she faces a, a so-called tricky opponent, and you know, 37 minutes later, she's in the locker room again, having lost two games. Uh, I can see that one going either way. The other other possible third-rounder is Karolina Mukova, who's a fun... Um, all-around player, someone who's fun to watch, beat Muguruza last year, so her breakthrough was was last year at the U.S. Open. Um, Here's some yeah, numbers on, yeah. on that little corner of the draw. So this is how, how close it looks for who's going to reach that third round, presumably against Serena. Mukova and Sia, how do you say it? Hisia? Shea. Shea, sorry. Uh, Mukova and Shea are 79.6% each to make the second round. <laughs> exact to the to the uh, to the tenth of a percentage point, and then to reach the third round, Mukova is forty four percent, and Shea is forty five point two percent. Yeah, that's pretty even. That's like what happens when I when I screw something up in my code, and and the it doesn't recognize who those players are, so it just treats everyone as a qualifier, and everyone has fifty percent chances of winning every round. I don't think that's what's happening here, but it, it feels a little like that. Yeah, if it were 50.0 on both sides, I'd be more suspicious. Yeah, that, that would be pretty suspicious. So, yeah, those are some matches to watch. I mean, to, to me, the it's gotten to the point where the first round of slams on the women's side starts feeling oppressive because I want to watch almost every single match, and it's just not possible, however hard you try. Um, anything else on the women's side that you'd like to touch on? Well, I, you've highlighted a possible second rounder between Stevens and Kuznetsova and their two previous slam winners, previous U.S. Open winners, right? Yeah. Um, and yet it feels unlikely that that match will happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I could check the numbers and see if it is, but... Yeah, Stevens is like all over the grounds. She has a new deal with Rolex or someone who's plastered big, big images of her, more than life size, I think. Um, so she's definitely a presence in that sense. And she's back working with 
uh, her coach. Kamal Murray? Yeah, Kamal Murray, who she was working with when she won the U.S. Open. So, uh, anyway, very interesting slam for her. And Kuznetsova just had a really nice tournament. Uh, that was Cincy, right, making the final? Yep. So, anyway, I, I, I think, I hope that matchup happens, and I hope the winner goes goes deep because it would be nice to see both of them or either of them. I guess we can't have both of them deep in this slam, but it'd be nice to have one of them. No, unless one of them's playing doubles. I guess Kuznetsova has had some good doubles runs over the years. Great um, net game. Great net game. Absolutely. Um, and final thought on the women's draw. We haven't even talked about some of the favorites. We've mentioned Osaka a little bit and talked about Serena, but we haven't mentioned Barty except for acknowledging that she lost an exhibition to Coco Goff. Uh, we haven't talked about Halep except for talking about her losses in the past. Um, does this still look like a, a narrow and possibly meaningless favorite status for Ashley Barty? Well, I don't think it's meaningless. Like if you if you are the favorite but have a low percentage of winning and then you don't win, that doesn't make it meaningless that you are the favorite. Yeah, but... it's it, 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 yeah, meaningless is an exaggeration. But it, and and actually, the numbers that I, if I remember the numbers right, she's around twenty percent, which isn't really low for I'm a, surprised. A yeah, favorite these days. Yeah, yeah I think Djokovic that, is at twenty eight. Yeah, yeah, and that's as that's as low as a men's favorite has been for for some time. And that, as we talked about, is largely driven by the draw. So. So yeah, Barty has, and, and to some extent, Halep have, have put a little bit of, of space between them and the field. I mean, they are the last two women to, to win slams. Uh, in a way, it's been more impressive because they both won the slams that the other one should have won. So they, they both showed us that they were a little more well-rounded than we might have given them credit for. Uh, but yeah, even the 20% seems a little bit aggressive to me. If I, if I were making up those... 128 times 7 numbers for the table, then I don't think I would come up with a number that high for Ash Barty. Well, I think she got a good draw. And I think, you know, the the part of the draw that might not look that good is that Serena, she'd meet Serena before the final. But again, Serena has a tough draw just to get there. She's She was recently injured. Um, it's, it's not as scary as it usually is to have Serena nearby. So... I think that helped. I think if you flipped around the draw, she she might be well below twenty. But yeah, that Barty may be may not make much noise, may not be talked about much early, but has a pretty good shot at getting to those last rounds, and that that may be a big part of it. Yeah, um, I mean, it seems like every round in this draw is a potential upset, uh, and not just in the purely theoretical sense. So so yeah, we're really just looking at the players who have a slightly better chance at escaping the gauntlet of every one of these seven rounds. Um, last thing about this group of players, uh, I do not want to belabor this very much, but we are talking about Serena Williams and Carlos Ramos again because it is a year since the, the kerfuffle at the last year's U.S. Open final. Uh, the official word from the U.S. Open is Ramos will not be handling any of Serena's matches, which they're quick to point out is fairly common on tour that when there is a dispute between a player and an umpire, they're, they're kept apart for a little while. We saw that for, I feel like a couple of years with Nadal and Carlos Bernardes. Um, it hasn't been too much of an issue lately because Serena hasn't really played that much in some of the events she's played. I'm guessing Ramos hasn't even been there, so it hasn't been too much of a potential thing, but the U S open hasn't made too many other changes. I mean, it, it one of the articles that I read was saying that after the final last year, the, 
the general feeling around the USTA staff was something has to be done. Like, we don't know what to do, but this can't happen again. Uh, and as it turned out, they haven't done much besides keeping them apart. I think they're, they've got a, a better way of communicating violations on the scoreboard, but that's pretty much it. I mean, Carl, do you think that that's, I mean, should they have done more? I mean, is there anything they could have done here? I mean, what's your take on that? So I watched a couple of nights ago the ESPN one-hour documentary, part of a new series called Backstory, about this exact case. And the reporting there made it sound like the USDA did everything they could, and ultimately they came up against the structure of the slams, which is that there are certain rules they can't unilaterally change or put in place. And they did want to change things and basically couldn't. So they have some things around like communication and sort of meta surface level things that they do have autonomy over. But they it sounds like I mean, who knows how sincerely or impressively they made their case. But what I've read about how these things tend to go is it doesn't really matter. What matters is how traditionalist Wimbledon is feeling. And usually the answer is very. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When you have to convince Wimbledon to make a, a change towards modernization, that's that's not a good starting point. Um, do you think that now that we're a year on from this happening, that it, that it's that it's appropriate to keep Carlos Ramos from officiating Serena Williams matches? So one thing the documentary didn't have was any direct comments a year later from Serena or Ramos. Uh, by the way, I'm planning to have the the host of that documentary and the reporter behind it, Don Vanatta, on 30 Love very soon, maybe even later today. So cool. maybe there'll be more about this. So I think we don't have the context of like, maybe Ramos said, I don't want to call one of her matches either. And not in the sense that I don't think he'd be afraid, but just it would be, it would be ugly. It, the attention around it, the crowd reaction, maybe it's too soon anyway. So... I think it probably does make some sense, but I do wish we could hear from both of the um, the principals in the story. And if they both say, hey, look, we this isn't about like hard feelings or not trusting each other. It's just about avoiding the spectacle for another year or two. And we're totally on board with it. Then that makes sense to me. I mean, it, it does raise the question of like, what if she's in a big match and he doesn't get a chance to call it? But he did get the women's final last year, so he probably wasn't up for it this year anyway. Um, yeah. And, you know, one thing that came out of that documentary that I don't think had been reported elsewhere, Don says it, no one else had, had mentioned it publicly before. The two of them, Carlos and Serena, at Serena's instigation, after the match, went into a room, closed the door, and had a conversation that sounded tense but professional and respectful, where basically both of them said, I respect you, you know, I don't, I think you do a good job, I think you were wrong in this case. And the fact that that happened, and then that neither of them, like, talked about it for ever since, and because he, he got unnamed sources to, to share that, uh, makes me feel a little better about the future of that relationship and maybe of like where this is all headed, that at least there was that instant appreciation of things got heated on the court. Ramos didn't seem heated, but clearly was emotional in some way. But we can have this conversation as two people who are near the top of, of our sport about what just happened almost immediately after. So anyway, I thought that that suggests that maybe if they aren't going to have a match together, it's not necessarily because they 
they just can't stand each other or don't trust each other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that it's just a matter of managing the media. And in this case, the, the New York media and one of the biggest tennis events of the year. So I understand keeping the spotlight off that. I, I do always feel for the umpires. Like You're right to say that Ramos didn't, since he got the women's final last year, he probably wouldn't get the women's final again this year. But we've talked about this before on the show with the Nadal-Bernardis issue that uh, when when you have a, a spat like this between a play, a top player and an umpire, it, it however much sense it makes to keep them apart just to to keep tensions at bay, like you are ultimately limiting the professional opportunities of the umpire. I mean, you're not limiting the player in any way, but but the umpire is is being kept off of those certain opportunities and. Yeah, I mean, maybe it wouldn't be an issue here. Maybe Ramos wouldn't be in consideration for a women's semi or women's final anyway. But from an umpire's perspective, a Grand Slam final is as good as it gets. I mean, that's what they're they're aspiring to is being good enough and respected enough to get that call. And Serena is likely enough to be in the final that that Ramos won't even be in the mix for or might not be in the mix for for some of those late round matches. And that seems like a shame, but maybe that's a price worth paying to to get the media focused on other things. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where I'd love to hear more from umpires and know how they do view these trade-offs. Like, you know, very different from players, whether they call that slam final or not does not affect their income or at least not nearly as directly as it does um, players. And I've, I've often heard umpires referred to not in terms of the number of finals they've worked, but like, have they worked every slam final? So maybe, whether they happen to work a random quarter or semi or a final that they've done before doesn't matter in the same way as it does for a player. I, I just don't know. Like, it could be that it hurts every time just as much as it would hurt to be upset in the quarters for Serena. But without more sort of public commentary from umpires in cases like this, we, we can only speculate. Yeah, I mean, it, it is nice that the umpires in tennis are so professional that they rarely tell us anything, but it is a fascinating part of the sport that as a consequence we don't end up learning that much about which in in its way is a shame so back to actual tennis which is what i would prefer to focus on anyway carl you mentioned around the ground seeing the all the all the sloan advertising and stuff like that which reminded me that you've been going to some u.s open qualities this week we talked about that briefly in last week's episode but you hadn't been there yet and and I have a couple of questions about more specific things, but let's just start with, with anything that, that caught your eye, anything new this year or players that, that you were excited to watch from, from a week at U.S. Open Qualies? Yeah. Um, well, Sinner was high up there. I had heard a lot about him but hadn't seen him. I, I can't say I saw anything... I think you really have to watch a player a lot to pick up on the things that are interesting. And even then, my intuition often doesn't match the numbers. But he's clearly very talented in a lot of different ways and also has a good attitude in a match. Like, the stats back that up in terms of some of the clutch stats and and comebacks. But also, he had a great comeback to to stay alive in the second round of, of qualies. And I was at that match. He was down 5-2 in a match point in that game, and then he won it 7-5. And they hugged at the net after. I thought his opponent would just be devastated. Uh, and then there, there Who was were, he playing? Uh, I can't remember his name. He was from the Balkans, and he looked older. <laughs> Clearly, if he had won, I would have looked him up. But I, I, I just felt too sad for him to want to know. Okay. Um, I'll check in a second. And 
he anyway so so that was probably the most notable thing i actually talked about this on the last episode of 30 love a little bit the other two notable things were like there aren't that many notable storylines and you and i talked about that too there there seem to not be that many young players who are also exciting who are also outside the top 100 and have to play qualities and also at the u.s open i think this year more more than ever before Qualies Week was really rebranded as Fan Week, and the focus of fans was taken to sort of anything but the Qualies. And there were definitely hardcore fans at the Qualies court, so it's not like the players were ignored, but there were way more fans on the grounds, and a whole lot of them were going to watch practices of stars, or they were watch they were going to the various um, vendors' booths or to the indoor facility because it was pretty hot out for most of the Qualies. Um, so it felt like Qualies was like one of several events happening of legends, doubles happening in some of the show courts. Yeah. That's new this year, isn't it? I am not sure. It's, it's either new this year or new in the last couple of years. Um, I mean, they have all these nice show courts and it doesn't really make sense to put Qualies on them. I don't think any of the Qualies matches need them, but, um, they want to kind of showcase them and test them out. And so there, there's a whole lot going on other other than Qualies. And 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 then Qualies was ending early uh, in the last three days. So it or early it was ending in the afternoon, the last three days. So it was no longer an event available to people after a uh, standard work day in a way that it had been in the past. Yeah, that that drives me crazy when it's happened at other tournaments I've gone to as well, that the slam qualities seem to really like to use all the courts and guarantee that matches get done the final day. And I understand from the tournament organizer's perspective that if you've got 15 courts to work, 16 courts to work with, and you've got the, the, the umpires and the, the lines people available, then yeah, you'd put two matches on a court, probably get everything done in a few hours and if there is one marathon match then you still get it in you don't end up having to come back tomorrow but from and a, you're from rainproof a fan, or more rainproof too exactly yeah that 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 was a i think a big thing of the french open this year um so so that's a factor as well basically yeah every everything's geared around getting it done uh because the last thing you want is qualities to interfere with the the big show starting on monday or in the case of roland garros on sunday um but yeah, from a fan perspective, you do seem to lose something because those of us who have normal jobs and can't spend all day at US Open qualities, I'm saying those of us, that's not me. Those, the, the other people who unfortunately can't go to qualities all day, uh, if if it's over at four, then I mean, you, you don't even get to go. And some of my best memories when I was going to qualities every year were the matches that stretch into the, into the evening, even on the final day. And you only really have to to schedule three matches on most courts and some of them will end up going along, but that's not what they've done. I mean, even, even before Friday, they were, were scheduling, I think just two matches on most of the courts. So it was finishing up too early for the evening crowd. And yeah, like I say, I understand it, but it does seem like a shame. Yeah. And I, you know, I think part of it is also in addition to the players and the umps and the line judges, there are a whole lot of people working at any event like that. And Obviously, it's cheaper to not keep them for more hours, so this may be for money savings. But also, it's a lot of the same people who are working the tournament, and the tournament is exhausting. And like as it is, I think it's hard for people to just like make it through uh, with enough sleep and just like you know enough rest of other kinds and, and food and everything. So if they can make those work days shorter, I can see the advantage there. Um, and maybe they could have had maybe they had shifts in past qualities years, and so they saved on a shift. 
Yeah, that could be. Um, hey, you should find someone with the USDA who can talk to you about that and have them on for 30 Love. That would be a super interesting conversation. That is the plan. Okay. Something else to look forward to there. So last question about slam qualities. We discussed this a little bit via email this week. You've mentioned seeing Sinner, who would have been at the very top of my list to watch. Uh, you sent me a picture from watching Carlos Berloch, who is usually entertaining, even if you wouldn't be in the top of my list. And there's this this kind of extreme contrast in who the interesting players are. So I think there's always a lot of fans, and especially someone like me, who if you go to qualies, you go looking for the next generation of stars. So last year we watched Aujay Ali Asim in qualies. Um, I always talk about seeing Del Potro in qualies back in 06 or 07 and other, other prospects not quite of that magnitude over the years. Um, but there's also the players who are former greats, or at least formerly notable, like Berloque and Nicolas Mahou has been playing qualies. Tommy Robredo was there um, this year and last year. Uh, I remember watching a Nicolas Lepenti match at the very end, tail end of his career in qualies. So you can always get some of those recognizable names. Uh, I mean, do you have a preference, Carl? If you're if you're picking matches, do you go one direction or the other? I probably lean younger, although there is a part of me. I mean, I think one of the reasons the oldsters are popular wherever they are in the rankings, whether they're Robredo qualifying or 38-year-old Federer number three in the world, there's always that little feeling of like maybe we won't have more chances, whereas with Sinner we might have 20 years of chances. So the scarcity, I think, is is part of it. And And then there is something kind of romantic about a former top 10 player, you know, grinding it out with the career challenger level players trying to get a place in the main draw that he used to take for granted. And there's also this factor that you mentioned earlier that it's tough to get a feel for a player just just by watching one match. And if if, if you do go watch Robredo or Nicolas Mahou, you already know what you're in for. So there's another layer to enjoy. Like, not only are you watching that match, but you get to watch it in light of how much you've seen them in the past. So going beyond familiarity, you have that, that sort of comparison and, and checking up on a player. Uh, one thing that I'd, I'd love to, to research, I just haven't done it and would also like to have more data to do it. I don't have slam qualities going back that far, but I would love to know how many legit prospects there typically are. It's easy to to think of the Sinners and the Auger Aliasims and the, little bit, the Del Potros and, and think, oh, I go to qualies to see the next generation. But there are 128 men and 128 women in qualies. Most of them are not future stars. I mean, there's only room for so many future stars. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and in fact, it's, it's one of those, I, I don't know the name for this statistical paradox or whatever it is, but like maybe just about every future star plays qualies but a there aren't that many future stars because there aren't that many stars and b they tend to advance past that stage of their career really fast so in terms of like percentage of all players who play qualies at some point in their career they're much higher than the percent in any one draw because they might only play that one draw whereas some guys like victor galovic the croatian who center b uh you know are are playing I don't know, for the eighth time or something like that. And he's never qualified. So you can imagine holding match point in the second round of qualies what a big moment that was for him. And, you know, for someone like Sinner, it might be like, well, whatever, I'll get it next time or I'll already be in the main draw next time. And, you know, that was something that really struck me during qualies too, is that 
I don't know how you make this a selling point, but if you want just sort of like the drama of pressure of like leverage on a career level, I don't think you've calculated a career leverage stat yet for a match, but the career leverage of a second or third round of qualies is so much higher than like, you know, Federer playing a semifinal at a slam does not have a very high career leverage these days because either way he's got at least 20 and he might not win the final. But for someone who like could make a main draw, could get the ranking points and more importantly the money, which could pay for travel and coaching and everything else, like there aren't too many matches of higher leverage uh, for a single person's life as these. Yeah, that, that's something that the British press does well around Wimbledon. Like I, I sometimes give the British press a hard time because they they, they do uh, get so excited about such provincial things sometimes. But around Wimbledon, when they are ramping up the excitement for the main tournament, I think I think Wimbledon qualies gets more attention these days than the other Slam qualies do. And one of the things they do well is is highlighting just how important final round of Wimbledon qualies is for people. And I. One thing that helps there is they play best of five in the final round there. So it, it feels like a real Wimbledon match, and there's there's so much at stake. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's everything you said. It's it, it's huge. The the points might not be enough on their own, but yeah, you, you get into more tournaments, you get seeds in more tournaments, you have the money to maybe take a coach around with you for a few months. It just it, it removes the pressure. Yeah, they're they're really big matches and. And relative to the career leverage, as you put it, um, there's, they don't get a lot of attention unless, you know, Tommy Robredo is in them. So I think that wraps things up for this week. We'll wait for some actual tennis to get underway before we come back with episode 76. But Carl, before we, before we say goodbye, any, any final U.S. Open thoughts? I think you could call it life leverage. Life leverage. And then you've got the alliteration. Oof. Uh, final U.S. Open thoughts. Although we we already have an LL in tennis, that's lucky loser. You're right. Which is I- ironic. Life leverage is what you get if you win. LL is what you might get if you lose final round of qualies. But I mean, lucky loser might be the biggest life leverage of anything that happens in tennis because you lost that match and then by pure luck you're put in. There, there's a study to do. How much how much difference is the guy who gets the lucky loser from the guy who doesn't going forward? Anyway, not an easy study. U.S. Open final thought. The weather is going to be great. It's going to be absolutely great. I don't know what that will mean for the tennis. For anyone who's attending, though, it's going to be so much more pleasant during the day than it has been in some recent Opens. Well, I did not need to hear that as a person who is not going to the U.S. Open. But You still could, Jeff. Mm, could I? I mean, the, the, it's physically possible, yes. But I, I unfortunately will not be there. I'll be, I'll be stuck to my Eurosport player. And that'll have to be good enough. At least there'll be no crowds. Definitely no crowds. So, Carl, thank you as always. We'll be looking forward to all of your 30 Love content over the fortnight. Thanks, Jeff. And listeners, thank you, especially those of you from Sweden, Germany, Austria, Malaysia, and various other places in which we are apparently one of the top 1,000 tennis podcasts or sports podcasts, hopefully top 1,000 tennis podcasts. If you are the number, the 854th most popular sports podcast in Germany, I have a message for you. We are coming for you. You're going down. We're going to crack the top 850. If it's the last thing we do, we're going to really seriously keep doing exactly what we're doing now in the the the, the rather unenthusiastic way we're doing it. So watch out. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Jeff, what if in- number 854 is 30 love? You're coming for me. Didn't you check? 
Wouldn't shouldn't you know that? I didn't even get an email. I don't think I cracked the top hundred thousand. Ah, oh, that's that's a shame. This is this is one of the great mysteries of of tennis to me is is how Thirty Love is not like ten times more popular than the Tennis Abstract podcast. But that's a discussion for another day. Um, thanks again, Carl. Thanks everyone for listening. Enjoy the U.S. Open, and probably about a week from now, we'll be back with another episode.